Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. I'm Russell Brand. This week on Under the Skin, I spoke with Reverend Stephen Cottrell, who is the Bishop of Chelmsford in the UK, an actual bishop that I wanted to speak to because I read his book of analyses on the paintings of the British artist Stanley Spencer, famous for painting Christ in everyday situations on a high street at a regatta. Don't have a regatta every day, I appreciate that. It would be expensive and mental in the winter particularly. But what I mean to say is he extracts Christ from the Bible, sticks him on the street, sort of making the point Christ has got to be here now to be relevant. So anyway, he's a sort of an art critic as well as a bishop. And I thought that would be interesting. And it is interesting to talk to someone who's got a doctrinaire committed faith in one particular aspect of religion. Hey, before we get into your comments on last week's uh, podcast with Dr. Tom Voice, here's some personal promo. If you're listening to us, then you are on the Luminary app. Well done. Thank you. We appreciate that. Get other people to join it too. I'm sure you're starting to discover that there's loads of good content on here. You can talk to us about that if you want to. I'm doing two stand-up shows in Calgary on the 15th of June, one at 6pm at 1 and one at 9pm. All proceeds go to Fresh Start Recovery Centre. Tickets are at russellbrand.com. It'll be me doing stand-up. I'm not going to be just, you know, going on about how everything's consciousness and you've got to be kind and all that. Oh, no, just jokes and stuff and taking the living piss i'm in los angeles i'll be doing more recovery live shows that is where i will be talking about you know consciousness be kind dissolve the self all that sort of stuff keep an eye on my social media for announcements and look at russellbrand.com for tickets i'm definitely going to do three or four shows over the course of june so uh keep your eyes peeled darlings also have a look at my youtube channel for more of these spiritual videos and clips from the podcast one thing goes up every day so keep subscribing and subscribe and follow me on twitter as well at rusty rockets follow me on instagram that's at true russell brand and then you'll get lots of content loads of free content every single day also my latest book mentors is available as an audio book you can get it on kindle you can get it as a hardback in the us and canada and remember that recovery is still out now translated into over eight human languages and who knows how many alien and animal ones i just don't keep track on that there are no royalties uh, for that so i just let them do what they need to do had a lovely time in what was the name of that bookshop jen Vrunen, Vronen, Vroon. Romans. It was a Romans bookshop in Pasadena. What a wonderful event. What a wonderful occasion. You can have a look at clips of from that on our Facebook feed and probably the whole thing, can you? Yeah, have a look at that. That's me talking about mentors and recovery more broadly and spirituality and all that kind of stuff. It's pretty good, as a matter of fact, I think. It was a lovely event. Signed some books. I'm going to be doing some more things like that. So again, keep an eye on social media. That is where we can connect and manage our relationships together. Have a look at Rebirth on Netflix if you want a bit of a laugh and to see me still misty-eyed and sentimental about fatherhood. Now, two years in, I'm much more a punch-drunk dope hung up on the ropes, all bleary and gutted and blood-spattered from the experience of parenting two daughters. But check out uh, Rebirth. Check out Rebirth on Netflix. It's good stuff. Let's have a listen to what some of you said about Dr. Tom Boyce, the uh, paediatrician, behavioralist and psychiatrist. Mallory Corneliuson says, what an incredible episode. Applause, applause, applause. I don't have children, but learn so much about my own self 
and now understand where a lot of my fragilities come from, baffled face. Thank you, Russell, exclamation mark. Thank Darko, Darko Frank. Mind-blowing new episode of Hashtag Under the Skin without Rusty Rockets and Dr. Tom Boyce about biopsychological trauma. He's understood it better than I do. I would never have got come up with biopsychological trauma. Did Tom Boyce say that? And I was just like, oh, that's too complicated. Hashtag trauma. Trauma can't be a hashtag, can it? Uh, hashtag trauma model. Excuse me. In the light of new... Oh, I'm going. This is my final moment. <clears throat> no, oh, sorry, I just had to clear my throat. Hashtag trauma model in light of new evidence. Thanks, Frank. Darko, Darko, Frank. Peacock, Doc, Chloe. It's definitely not easy being a sensitive soul in this modern world. I tell you what, it isn't, is it? No wonder people are numbing their senses by, well, what? Drugs, drink, consuming, food, sex, gambling. Sort of an attempt to manage your senses in a world that... These systems, they've got to change, haven't they? They've got to change. We're going to be talking to many more people in underskin, Peacock, Chloe or Chloe Peacock, that uh, have in powerful insights that are going to help us change the world. And I'm writing another book about God. And if surely this will help us get to the bottom of it, it's probably going to be called Revelation. How about that? Controversial? Don't be daft. Brian Soberard says, I'm enjoying Orchid and Dandelion. It speaks to people when they realise they store all the stress of every day in their bodies, yeah. And the fact we can do something about it, through prayer, yoga, meditation, dance, and so on. We don't have to be the product of our past actions and things that have been done to us. Thanks. Brian, that's a lovely observation. I completely agree with you, mate. Where did you say that? On Facebook or uh, Instagram? Facebook. Mm, nice. Cheers, Brian, mate. Let us know what you think about uh, Under the Skin, um, this week's episode with a bishop. Let us know if you're a, you know, a person who's against conventional Christianity, for example, or against orthodox religion entirely. Let us know why, and let us know how you feel listening to someone who has a very particular, bespoke and particular faith, rather than the pantheonistic sort of, what, what, what would we call my faith, sort of perennialism. That's what Aldous Huxley would call it, looking for the divine sublime in everything. Well, let's get into this podcast then, shall we, with a bishop. Bishop, it's your move, baby. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Should we do this podcast? Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Do we? Do you want to pray before it? I, I'm happy to. If you, yeah, if, go on. Because yeah. I like it. Yeah, I'll take yeah. The chances where I can get them. Yeah. Okay. Let us pray. Loving God, we thank you for the many, many blessings that you lavish upon us. We thank you for the gift of this day. We thank you for the gift of this time together. We thank you for the breath that is in us. And we pray that through this conversation, we may be blessed and we may bring blessings to others. And we ask this through Christ the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, um, when you are enter into prayer, do you consider it to be a different psychological space to regular uh, interaction? Well... The answer, I think, would be yes and no. That's not how I would describe it. Um, I would, I would describe it as um, prayer is actually the most natural thing you can do 
but because we don't do it very often, it feels unnatural. So I would say that human beings are made for relationship with God. Um, so that a Christian notion would be you cannot be yourself on your own, that you can only be yourself in community with others. And we see that in human relationships. We become ourselves in relation to others. And supremely, we become ourselves in relation to God. So that would be a Christian understanding. And prayer is the way in which we express and nurture that relationship with God. And because it's what we're intended for, because we become most ourselves in relationship with God, then actually it's the most natural thing in the world. So, so in that sense, no, I'm not entering into a different state of being when I pray. But I am becoming what I'm meant to be and I have to recognise that for much of my life I am not what I am meant to be. So in that sense, yes, it is a different state of being. How, um, I think I should just set up the reason yeah, yeah. that um, I was so keen to meet you. I read your book, Christ in the Wilderness, an analysis of a series of paintings by the British artist Stanley Spencer in which he depicts, using some scriptural influence, but also it seems his imagination, what Christ's period of uh, 40 days and 40 nights may have been like, which is a good time to talk about. It is. It. Here we are in Lent. Smash, yeah. right, smack, right, bang in the middle of Lent. Um, and I was moved by here are the things that I was well into I like the way you talked about your family it felt very candid and identifiable I l liked your obvious passion for Christ in this time of he of vulnerability before he decides mm. to you know before his inevitable destiny I suppose that's something that's you know, probably quite complex to think about that but Christ in the wilderness is a particularly interesting time for me also, and like I don't imagine we'll spend too much time talking about Stanley Spencer in this podcast in case it's a bit obscure, but I, I like the, the way that you acknowledged that you said there's one bit in that book where you said Stanley Spencer liked two things, Jesus and sex. <laughs> <laughs> you said it in relation to the depiction of Christ getting up in the morning, like yeah. I think it's maybe the first in a series yeah, of his intended, yeah. and you said that it looks something, something priapic and yeah. about sort of almost morning glory in Christ yeah. getting up. And I thought the fact that you uh, were not bashful about that and the idea like and i saw you know you talked about potentially a maternal christ in that instance you're talking about a sexualized christ or at least a sort of a kind of potent christ yeah so i thought oh, i'd like to talk to yeah except Stephen about yeah, jesus it's a really i mean the paintings are astonishing paintings um if you want to see them in the flesh you have to go to i'm afraid to perth in western australia sadly some people will be there listening they to will this. get, pop get to yourself gallery. over to the Museum of Modern Art in Perth. They're fantastic pictures. Where did you see them? I saw them in an exhibition in the Barbican, oh, a long time ago, in the 1980s or 1990s. Were you already a priest then? or a I think or... I probably was. I became a priest. Uh, I've never had a proper job, so um, I was a, I was a, became a priest when I was 25, um, and that was in 1984. So I, so I must have been a priest when I saw them. Um, and I was just completely bowled over by these images, and I've spent a long time thinking about them and talking about them. Quite often I used to, if I was giving a talk on prayer or on some other subject, I'd just kind of show one of the pictures, and that's how the book slowly emerged over many years. But that particular painting, the one you're talking about, um, Jesus rises from sleep to pray, um, has 
The thing about paintings is, it's ironic we're talking about a painting on a podcast where people can't see it, but let me try and paint the picture. The thing about pictures is you can read them in so many different ways. Um, and you can read it as just a bloke lifting his hands in prayer. You can also read it as a flower opening its petals to the sun. You can also read it, am I a bishop in the Church of England and a member of the House of Lords allowed to say erection? <laughs> you can read it as, you know, as, as something very sexual and very potent. Um, but I like that. I like the fact that Christ is alive fully alive and fully attentive upon God. So it's not a sexual picture as such, but it's impossible to look at it and not see some of the sexual imagery in it. Possibly there is a distinction between sexuality and erotica in that sexuality yeah. is in sort of an ultimate creative force. And and I think it's, you know, if when I consider the, sort of the commonly understood idea of uh, women that take a vow and become nuns as being sort of married to Christ the idea of entering into a relationship with Christ as a sort of a partner is like uh, there's precedent for it it's a sort of colloquial and accepted obviously sort of in uh, like as translated by an artist like Stanley Spencer who you know as you said he was very sort of I, what is he? He's passionate about sex he's obsessed with sex you know, he has a, like a sort of a very curious personal life to see, excuse me, to see him interpreting, like, because the, the other thing that's mo evident is that he sees Christ as very human. Like, that's everything that's surprising about, like, this sort of thick forearmed, like, not a waif like, starving, ethereal Christ, but a very earthy, human, male, sort of rural Christ. Yeah, I think. I think how Spencer sees Christ is certainly how I would see Christ. I suppose that's what drew me to the pictures, is that Christ is God come down to earth. That Christ is God uh, speaking to us in the only language we understand, which is the language of another human life. So he comes to us in flesh, flesh and blood, um, because we can't understand anything else. Um, so, yeah, it's a very earthy Christ. Um, and the wilderness experience for Christ, certainly in the scriptures and through these paintings, is one of refining, um, where you let go of everything. How do you, I mean, given the fact that you are a bishop in the, the Church of England, I suppose I have to assume that your understanding of Christ is in alignment with the that ecclesiastical it is, tradition. I, yeah, yeah. And that is that sort of Christ is the is God in human form who you know ministered for three years and, and is a sort of an embodiment of God and like because like, when I how do you uh, tally the historical Christ the with the metaphysical Christ with the theological Christ how how do you deal with those sort of distinct discrete ideas? And uh, like, just I mean a little bit. <clears throat> I'm sort of doing very like various sort of academic studies under the auspices of SOAS, and I was talking to somebody yesterday about. Uh, I mean, I I very into the twelve step uh, philosophy, which is derived from sort of Christianity and people like William James uh, and the Oxford Group, yeah. first century Christian group, and uh, like some influence from Carl Jung. And this historian that I spoke to a couple of days ago said that there was an interstitial period of Christianity prior to the conversion of Constantine where uh, 
uh, like the various uh, foreign groups brought together under the Roman Empire uh, used Christianity as a kind of mutual social bond right now and like that that was one of the reasons that Christianity was so effective at that particular time so like when I like just to listen to that whether or not you sort of agree with it and these historians I've got no reason to query what you're saying it just sort of shows that there are so many lenses for looking at that and you know when you sort of hear people say oh Christ would likely have been like a Jewish radical yeah. or a political figure and then some people say oh he was a Gnostic and like how do you know how do we choose and you know and then there's Stanley Spencer's sort of earthy flesh Christ how do we choose and understand Christ you know here today you and I well my answer to that would be that we have to turn to the primary sources and the primary sources remain the scriptures the, you know the, the 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 bible particularly here the new testament and the gospels and although i won't bore you or your listeners with all the you know the the arguments and details which show that these can be turned to as reliable accounts of the life of christ that that has to be where we begin and i think that has to be the yardstick by which we measure everything else so what i turn to um, is the accounts of Jesus that I find in the Gospels and that's where I root my understanding of, of who Jesus is and what I find there um, is a story of God who loves the world so much cares so deeply about the world that he reaches out to the world that he has made recognising you know, in the whole story of the people of God the, the the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, God was reaching out again and again to people uh, in those stories, um, but supremely he reaches out to us. You know, it is a crazy story, but it is, for me, the truth upon which all other truths are contingent, that God... You know that Jesus, in other words, Jesus isn't just a good bloke. Um, <laughs> he's not, you know, he's not just an inspiring teacher. That Jesus actually is the God who made the heavens and made the earth, actually entered this creation that He made, and shares our humanity. And and whatever else I want to say about God, and please don't think by me saying this it doesn't mean to say I don't have doubts and questions. Of course I do, but that is the ground upon which I stand. That in Jesus Christ. God has come down to earth. Why? To share what it means to be human. And therefore, everything I experience as a human being has been shared by God in Jesus Christ. Um, and that changes my humanity. What do you mean everything you experience? Do you mean in particular pain and suffering and, yeah, and yeah. doubt and yeah, yeah, sin? Every, everything, yeah. Or temptation. The, the, the Christian faith has always understood that Jesus shares our humanity and that Jesus shows us what humanity is supposed to look like. So he was tempted like we are, yet without sin. All of us have fallen short. I mean, I don't know whether a sin is a word you're happy to speak about, but my definition of sin is, um, well, you know that feeling, which most, I think, every human being has. It's a, if you haven't, it's a problem. Well, you know, you go to bed at night, you look back over the day, and you think, well, why did I... Why did I say that? Why did I do that? We all look back with regrets over things we've said and done. Well, when you do that, when that happens, when a human being looks back with regret over things they've said and done, what you're saying is, oh, blimey, I fall short of my own standards. Yes. That's what you're saying. I fall short of my own standards. Now, the church has a word for that. 
sin. It's just, it's just when you fall short of the standards you set for yourself. Now imagine the standards of God, the, the way that God wants us to inhabit the world, the mess that we've made of the world, the way we mess up each other. We fall short of those standards. What does God do about it? Well, he comes in a person like us to show us what humanity could be like. That's the Christian faith. There's necessarily paradox and contradiction in that central motif, isn't there? In that to embody the divine is, I don't mean to say that embodiment of the divine is necessarily to somehow taint it, but it's, there is no power or majesty in it if we don't accept that that was some, that, that right, we know when you just said Christ was tempted, like my reading of the temptations of Christ as a person who doesn't know like loads about Christianity is it like it's a kind of foregone conclusion that there's never yeah, a bit where Jesus yeah, you know, yeah, actually yeah. I think but I will I, have yeah, them kingdom I, I disagree with you really yeah <clears throat> because I think well if the Christian faith is true obviously I think it is yeah but let's just for argument's sake say if it's true then its claim is that Jesus became fully human so in other words he's not it's not kind of like Superman who you know looks around for a telephone box to reveal himself. So he's so he's actually really Superman, but he's disguised as Clark Kent. He is really human. And to be really human means to suffer, to be vulnerable, to be tempted, um, to not know what the future holds. That, that's to be human, is to not know what the future holds. Um, to risk. And... So the Christian faith says, no, Jesus was, was really human. So God had really, uh, there's a the beautiful poem in the Bible where it says, God emptied himself of what it is to be God in order to become what it is to be human. Um, so, so I believe that it was not a foregone conclusion. And many of the great spiritual writers write about this. Who like? Well, there was the, the you know, you remember the, do you remember the Martin Scorsese film, yeah. um, The Last Temptation of Christ, yeah. which got a real hammering often from the church, though sadly that was a bit predictable on our part. Um, the, the book that was... in that, it's like Mary Magdalene, he's, he has a family. Yeah, that, exactly. So? That, the Last Temptation was the temptation to, to become lead, a man. To be an, no, to have an ordinary life. Yeah. To be married, have a family. That was the Last Temptation. To, um, uh, and and I thought it was a deeply serious book, and a serious. I mean, that, that everyone got hung up on him, you know, having a sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene. But in a book, that was the whole point. It wasn't the sex that was the point. It was that he was going to settle down and have an ordinary life. Um, that was the greatest temptation of all, according, and that and that ties in with this whole idea of Jesus shows us what humanity is supposed to. Not to not not saying having an ordinary life is wrong but saying that he really was a human being like us. To speculate on what it would mean if, uh, you know, like that if Christ had failed, if Christ had, uh, you know, said, yeah, all right, I'll accept them kingdoms, or yeah. if Christ had indeed, yeah. like, uh, got married and, you know, like, it's, almost seems like mythically impossible you know whether it's sort of like it's difficult to know sort of what lens to appreciate that in do you find that in order to fully uh it, 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 what do I say inhabit your faith that you have to uh relinquish comparative 
systems of understanding or lenses for example in the idea that uh, sort of like like that god embodies christ and has a human experience we would have to assume that there is still the the idea of god the father continues to exist simultaneously while christ the man exists in order that the totality of the universe and the totality of being beingness can continue while this experiment occurs this this yeah. this uh, you know particular uh, what I want to say, this tranche where like Christ, where God interacts with human beings in human form in order to demonstrate that we have God in us, that the, the, the way to a true connection with God is through the self, you know, like, so do you, like, do you allow yourself to consider what that might mean in other metaphysical traditions uh, like a few things i'm thinking of is it like in buddhism when buddha like he's saying like you know we all have the possibility for buddhahood it exists in all of us we can all realize ourselves like it like it seems from what you've said so far that we can't all realize christ consciousness or, or we can perhaps realize christ consciousness but we can't all be christ in the same way that in buddha at least theoretically we could all you know well no i think we can only again i, I wouldn't use that language though no disrespect to buddhism and other religions um but the christian approach would be to say that left to our own devices we will usually mess things up um and most you know most you know who doesn't go to bed thinking why did i do that why didn't i say that so left to our own devices we'll so it's almost like in order to become who we're meant to be in order to save ourselves god has to do it for us um so god comes in the likeness of our own flesh in order to do for us what we could never do for ourselves um so so it's a, in other words it's a gift so that you know i think the the wonderful thing for me about the christian faith is that i can have i can be forgiven i can have peace with god i can be set free of all the things i've done wrong not because of any worthiness on my part not not because i've said the right prayers or done the right thing or achieved enlightenment whatever that is i do it because the demonstration of god's love of god in christ is love that god you know somebody we started off talking about prayer let me tell you my definition of prayer my definition of prayer is the lover coming into the presence of the beloved and saying i love you that's my definition of prayer and the point is that god is the lover god is the great lover who comes to you and me the beloved in jesus in a language we can understand another person like us basically the whole message of the christian faith is can i put it personally russell i love you i absolutely love you i know how you've messed up but you know i made you you're you're the only one there'll never be another one like you you're this unique one of a kind you i absolutely love you i'm committed to you hey i even died for you that's the message of the christian faith and that's a free gift and then once you've received that gift it's not that you stop being messed up but actually you stop thinking i have to, it's I, this is somehow salvation is an achievement well, let me tell you another can i tell you another story a few years ago getting a taxi home from the station Sikh taxi driver i knew he was a Sikh because he had a turban on and well spotted. Uh, and so he, he says to me he just he just turns to me and says oh you you religious then <laughs> I mean, you know, it wasn't my natural aura of holiness i was dressed like i'm dressed now with my collar on he goes, you religious then? And I said, I said, no, what made you think I was religious? 
And he goes, well, you know, the, you know, the collar. I said, oh, no, I'm not religious. I said, I'm a, I am a follower of Jesus. Um, and he said, well, that's a religion, isn't it? And I said to him, well, actually, I never think of it that way. I know we look like a religion, but I, I've, I'm not, nothing against religion. But I see religion as the human response to God. God is real and human beings get in touch with that reality and then we form systems and philosophies and ideas as our way of trying to get to God. And the Christian faith is not our way of getting to God, it's God's way of getting to us. That God says, um, I will come to you, I will come to you in flesh and blood like you. Now, the, the Christian faith may be wrong, um, uh, I don't think it is, obviously, but it makes a very different claim to all the religions and all the philosophers of the world. It says, not that it's a hu the human response to God, it's God's response to humanity. That's an important distinction, I suppose, in the way that m my relationship with spirituality is predicated on a continual acceptance that I have to surrender myself in order to receive a connection. Because my um, spiritual, whilst I suppose the religion or spiritual system that, like, you know, that sort of that I use to guide me is derived from Christianity, I wonder if it is distinct in that there is a sort of a focus on being, on, on having fallen and being broken because you know, it comes through the lens of addiction you know that that sort of uh, to be free from addiction i have to surrender i have to be acknowledge that i'm broken be willing to believe that it's possible to change and be you know it says made a decision to turn our life and will over to the care of god as we understood yeah. god so you know entirely non-denominational and open to yeah. any interpretation yeah. from it any background but i perhaps i don't know if you have this i suppose for a reason i, th I reckon on to some degree you might is because of the that we are sort of at the first point of interface is through your art criticism you know so it's like you are obviously interested in language languages that are discrete from scripture from t to yeah. you know talking about divinity and christ in particular well I feel that it is. I read this book by, you know, Emmett Fox. I know who you mean. I haven't read. He talks about, like, he says, the, the people he goes that, you know, compile scripture, these people are geniuses and they will have preempted the sort of the birth of psychoanalysis and concepts such as the ego and the id and the superego and, you know, which some of which have, you know, already subsequently been discarded. But what I personally feel is that I have an individual, a sort of a self sustaining identity as Russell and that identity can only get me so far. You know, because in the end, I will fail through yeah, my ego yeah. and through myself. Yeah, you will. I mean, I will as well. Um, uh, no, and I think the idea of surrender is is a really important idea in in I guess in all religions. And here, you know, I, the danger in what I've just said is that I'm kind of making Christianity out to be superior. And I don't mean it to sound that way. I'm just saying I think it's different. It makes different claims. In that you're, yeah, in that, yeah. well, that, that is a distinct, the idea of God coming towards yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, I, I get yeah, that. Yeah, um, but it doesn't mean to say I don't have huge respect for other religions, nor that we can learn from them. But I just think Christianity is different. Um, but, yeah, surrender is important because another religious Christian word is repentance. 
Um, and that is when we acknowledge that we've fallen short of our own standards, acknowledge that we've fallen short of God's standards, recognize that we cannot help ourselves, you know, surrender and repent are actually very close together as concepts in which we actually recognize, I can't do this on my own. Um, and and, and the, the glorious thing about that is this kind of related idea, I cannot be myself on my own. That if I long for self-fulfillment and self-realization, actually that can only come in community. Which is why the other kind of crazy but beautiful idea at the heart of Christianity is that God is community. Um, that we say God is the word we have is Trinity, that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So when we Christians talk about God, we're talking about the community of God. Um, and that's why when, I believe, when Jesus became a human being and lived this earth with us and among us, that wasn't an experiment that God the Father had set up, that somehow the very Godhead was changed by that, um, that the Godhead um, was emptied in a way into the Son um, in order, well, Augustine, one of the great teachers of the Christian faith, said, God became what we are so that we can become what God is. So God came down to earth to take us, up to heaven so in Jesus our humanity humanity and God are kind of joined together in Jesus and he becomes like the meeting point the bridge um, between humanity and God so we can be taken into the life of God not as an achievement that we win by being super spiritual or super repentant but because actually just because God actually loves us very much and shows us that that Augustine Saint Augustine yeah uh, um I read a little bit. There's a nunnery up the road. It's not a nunnery anymore. Otherwise, I wouldn't be loitering around there. <laughs> <laughs> but they've still got the library there. It's a St. Catherine's Cree, it's called. Oh, right. And uh, they've got a pretty good library. Yeah. And in there, they've sort of some of the writing of Augustine. And from what I looked at, it looked like prior to his canonization, he may have lived a pretty shady life. Yeah, he was. Um, yeah, yeah. He was a, He was somebody I think you could probably relate to. <laughs> yeah, I picked up the yeah. the flesh was an issue. It was. Yeah, it was. Make me. One of his most famous sayings is, "Lord, make me chaste, but not yet." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. He was. Well, I, I think the thing about the Christian faith is, it usually appeals most and works best for people who are broken. Yes. You know, blessed are those who know their need of God. And sadly, we live in a world where um, so many people think they're okay um, and live self-sufficient lives. Do you think that they think they're okay? No, I don't actually once you actually scratch the surface. But the, the danger is um, that we're messing up the world and messing up each other because we're not open to what I would think of as the spiritual side of life we're not acknowledging that with a new institution such as the church of england that has at its point of inception a kind of pact that in a sense will necessarily beget secularism how can the church ever claim precedence in national life again given the origins of the church of england are about a kind of subjugation to the primacy of the sovereign in that you know yeah yeah, we, that's a pretty good question, wasn't it? Yeah, we, come on. The, the Church of England. We we have a we have a complicated history, um, uh, and uh, 
you know, we 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 came into being as as probably many of your listeners know um, through Henry VIII wanting a divorce, which coincided with the big Reformation across Europe. But what's interesting about England is the Reformation happened in a way in England that doesn't really have comparisons anywhere else across Europe. I mean, it's it, we're speaking to each other in Lent, we're also speaking to each other on the day that in the House of Commons all those indicative votes happening on Brexit. We have always had a complicated history with Europe, th- th- this nation. Mm-hmm. And um, part of that happened at the Reformation itself, you know, all those years ago, where the Church of England developed a life that was very different from the Reformation churches in Europe. And we had this idea that we we were the Catholic Church of this land. We were the church for everybody in this land. Um, so the Church of England, although it's, it came into being in a strange way, has always had this idea, which I think is a beautiful idea, is that we're the church for everybody. We're the church for the people who don't go to church. <laughs> um, and I think that's a beautiful idea. So if you speak to any vicar and say to that vicar, how many people in your parish... They won't tell you the number of people who come to church on Sunday. They will tell you literally the population of the people who live in their patch. Because we have this idea, we're here for everybody. And at our best, what that means is, you know, we're involved in food banks, in homelessness shelters. We're involved in all kinds of stuff, which isn't about trying to get more people to come to church. We'd love them to come. They're very welcome. But it's about saying we... we seek to embody and express the care of Jesus Christ for everybody who lives here. And that came about because of our peculiar history where basically King Henry VIII said, I hope church historians aren't listening because this is not a, this is a very, very much a paraphrase of history. Basically, King Henry VIII said, I'm the Pope now. Whoa, that's yeah. badass. He was yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's really what he did. He you know, said, I'm the Pope now. Um and uh, and nothing else nothing else in reformation europe happened like that you, you, you what was the reformation the reformation was basically when uh christians uh who were reading the bible for themselves for the first time because the bible was being translated out of latin so the bible was being put into the hands of ordinary people people were reading the bible for themselves and actually caused them to ask questions of the way the church at that point, the church meaning what we now call the Roman Catholic Church, was interpreting, and they were coming up with other interpretations of which, again, I'm paraphrasing a lot of complicated history and theology. They were basically saying, um, you don't need the church to mediate between you and God. We have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. And so there were big kind of, culture wars and theological (laughs) wars which led to the Lutheran churches, the Calvinistic churches that appeared in Europe. But on mainland Europe at the Reformation, you had the Catholic Church now and then the Lutheran Church. So you had two churches where there had been one. In England, of course, we also had denominations developing, but in England the vision was that we remain one church, but now we're the church of this land. The legacy of that today is that the sovereign is still the titular head of the church but she doesn't you know she doesn't run or govern the church anymore it's a bit like she doesn't run the country um she she um but she has a role um it also means you know i've i I sit in the house of lords um so uh bishops are part of the government of this land and woven into it and that's all the legacy of the strange and unique way the reformation happened in england 
don't you feel like political pact of that nature and an, a politicised origin such as that can only compromise the primary function to realise Christ's love in as many people as possible because there are necessarily other objectives, competing objectives. I mean, yes and no. I mean, you know, I, I sit in the House of Lords and sometimes I'm, I usually go at least once a week and spend time there. Is it all right? It's a bit weird. You Is know, it? I, you have to remember, Russell, I'm, you know, I'm a boy from South End <laughs> who went to a secondary modern school, got three O levels. At my secondary modern school, if you got three O levels, you were considered to be something of an intellectual. Get you know, to the House uh, of yeah, Lords. Yeah. You know, so it's not really, you know, it, you know, still to this day, a lot of people in places like that, you know, tend to be, no, again, no disrespect to them, they tend to be public school, Oxbridge type people. I don't come from that background, so sometimes I sit there thinking, "How did how did this happen? How did I get to um, how did I get to be here?" Um, but I do think it is it is part of our history and heritage as a nation, um, and I think we need to be careful about ditching our history and our heritage too quickly. Often you don't realise how precious something is until you lose it. What do you um, mean? Well, I well let me give the example of bishops in the House of Lords. It means that. In the House of Lords and in and in the House of Commons, every session begins with prayer. Oh wow, really? Yeah, and a lot of people don't know that. So, so, um, so a a bishop. So one of us has to be there every day. There's a complicated rota because we lead the prayers. So every session begins with a kind of surrender to God, asking God's blessing upon the business that we do. Um, It also. What do you think most? politicians how do you think most politicians interpret that I know like say for example Theresa May's Christian person isn't she, she is. but I'm guessing Jeremy Corbyn's an atheist I would imagine yeah I don't know but um, well when I went into the House of Lords I was asking myself that question what what, what will people think and yeah there's some people who, th- who think we shouldn't be there maybe they're on their phone yeah, they, there's some people. They don't. You don't have to attend the prayers, you know, because there's a, right. obviously a conscience thing. You can come in after them, but it's amazing how many people do. Um, but I've discovered that people value our presence there, and the reason they value our presence is because, first of all, we're not party political, and secondly, because we bring an ethical and a spiritual dimension to things. So let me just give you one little example. A few years ago, when there was the debate about whether we should about which refugees that we should take into this country and um, whether we should take what were known as unaccompanied children from some of these, you know, from the camp in Calais and all of that. Um, Our government had put a figure on how many we should take and there was a motion, an amendment going through the House of Lords saying, you know, come on, part of our history as a nation is that we would, there was the kinder transport before the, you know, Second World War, Our tradition has been to take children from these places. We should be taking unaccompanied children. The the people in the House of Lords across the political parties who felt this is something we should do turned to the bishops because they saw this as an issue which transcended party politics. It was a moral issue about what sort of a nation do we want to be. I happened to be the duty bishop that day leading the prayers, so I was there, so they said, would I second the amendment and if necessary speak in the debate I was really proud and honoured to do that I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been there Um, but now there is a voice at the centre of our government which is not party political but is 
I suppose this sounds a bit pompous, I don't mean it to, to be the conscience of the nation. It seems that part of the dismay, despair, fracturing in British public life, perhaps even global public life, is precisely because of a lack of that conscience. There are many narratives which help me to appreciate why people would abandon religion of all varieties, particularly religions that have historic relationships with imperialism and are seen as institutions of power and social coercion above mediators of faith and love. For me, as a kind of perennialist, as a person that looks to see the love in various scriptures that I try to be present, whether it's, you know, in nature or in theology or, you know, like I'm open to God I because I feel like I need as an individual, as a human being, precisely what you've described, I need to feel that I am loved and that I am accepted and that the principles of the unknown, invisible world are more powerful than the principles of the material world, which for me feels like become dominated by the management of resources and the retention of power and influence and the ability to decide which narrative is the dominant narrative. My concern with, for example, parliamentary politics broadly is that it has become sort of gestural I, I don't mean necessarily in the case of incorporating members of the clergy in the House of Lords. I mean, the my with my my feeling that politics more broadly is about administering the interests of powerful transnational institutions as opposed to representing the will of the people. I, I feel like for a, 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 a long while that has been the trend and I feel like a lot of people feel that way and I feel like a reintroduction of spirituality or the conscience to use a term you did is precisely what's required uh, and with our declining what seems to be a declining faith you know when we talk about like the Church of England and attendance and people the sort of and this number of people I, I don't feel like you know like what do you see the role of the church being and how do you think that the world is suffering as a result of people not interfacing with yeah. spirituality i mean with i mean with politics i i am um, i mean i want to support our politicians it's not an easy job and they're an easy soft target uh, but i think the rise of the prof the professional politician which we've seen certainly over my lifetime i think is unfortunate um and whatever else the bishops provide is we're not professional politicians you know we've got day jobs and we go up to the house of lords is always one of us there um so I, I think politics is enriched when people from all walks of life are involved in it and we've seen a narrowing of our political life um in the last 20 years or so i think that's unfortunate um in terms of the church we've got nothing to be proud of um, our history has been a really difficult history. Um, How does this sort of thing happen, do you think? Human beings have fallen, um, and uh, just because you're a part of the church doesn't make you immune to that. Um, I remember Palm Sunday is coming up. Palm Sunday is the Sunday we remember Jesus entering into Jerusalem, and if you go to church on Palm Sunday, you get given a cross made of palms. I've got three sons. 
when my three sons were like really little boys, there was one Palm Sunday, they were given their palm crosses and they immediately turned the palm crosses upside down into swords and were having <laughs> little sword fights under the pew with their palm crosses. And as I watched them having their sword fights, I thought, yeah, that's what the church has done. We've turned the cross of Christ, which is the, the great symbol of God's complete sharing in what it is to be human, even sharing our death. The complete outpouring of love and peace. Jesus said to the people who nailed him to the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. We've turned that, the great symbol of self-giving love, we turned it into a sword to beat the world with. So the church has to be very penitent about the way in which we have distorted the Christian faith over the centuries. But I think the good thing nowadays is the church isn't that strong. And although, I, of course, I long for more people to come, I long for people, I think so many people never really heard the Christian faith. They never really encountered it. They think they know what it's about, but they don't. I long for that to change. But actually a poorer, weaker, less strong church might be a good thing. Um, it'll make us a little less pompous, a little more humble, a little more determined just to get alongside people. And I think that's a good thing. When are we done our uh, marital? We got married at a church, me and my wife. And uh, you almost, it felt like there was a sort of almost a degree of apology for, you know, it was a Church of England church. And I almost felt like they, like, I think I asked questions about like God and that and nature of this union. And I felt that, you know, of course, I, I agree with you that a sort of a bombastic, materialistic church is a dangerous and unhelpful thing and humility seems like it would be a crucial ingredient in any institution that is dealing with self-sacrifice and transcendence but um they're sort of it, i feel like in a way it's the same as the nation state if the nation isn't going to make a commitment to run hospitals run schools look after the people that need it then what is the nation what is it a flag and a football team and you know sort of tax breaks you know and, and in a sense with the church if the church isn't robustly saying look don't get caught up in this stuff because oh yeah yeah i agree with you but i think it's um but the danger is it what it it wasn't that we were doing that we were actually we were actually seeking power for ourselves and building earthly empires um and the church what should the church look like well the church should look like jesus christ it should look poor and simple and it should look peaceful and it should be robust about saying um you know G jesus's first words were repent I mean, the word actually literally means turn around. That's what it actually means, repent. It means turn around. You're going in the wrong direction. <laughs> you know, live your life differently. And so we should be robust about saying turn around. You know, the world needs to turn around. We are screwing up the world. Um, and we've got to change. This turning around, that would mean, like, my instinctive reaction to that concept is turn around from pleasure and face purpose turn around from material life and embrace yeah. a spiritual life turn around from self-service embrace service of others yeah. yeah i'd absolutely agree with you and all i would add to that is and the great thing is don't feel it's something you can you need to achieve by your own hard work oh, that, that actually that actually god cares about this stuff and cares about you and if you you know the, the classic Christian thing is you turn away from sin, what's wrong, you turn to Christ. 
if you turn to Christ, he will turn to you. He will accept you. I mean, in fact, it's nothing, nothing God likes better than accepting you. There's this bit in Isaiah verse, probably, rather than bit. He goes, uh, it was in the church, in the chapel at Brixton Prison. It says, uh, fear not. For I've redeemed you, I've called, called you, you by, by name, your name, you're mine. mine. Yeah. I liked that. Yeah, beautiful words. Yeah, yeah. God is the lover who comes into the presence of beloved. He knows us by name. Yeah, you personally. I liked it when yeah. you said Russell before. Yeah, like yeah. Because it's, it's a different thing because you think, oh, this is just some generic series of, yeah. sort of scriptural tropes. You no, know, I'm, I'm a simple soul. And, um, <laughs> you know, and I, um, you know, I... Um, well, you know that I can remember my first when I my first date with my first girlfriend. I always had a very good relationship with my mum. I still do, and I remember speaking to my mum, and you know, I'm really nervous. You're a nervous teenager going on your first date, and she said, "Oh, Stephen, don't worry, just where be. are you going to go?" We went to the pictures. Mm. I, I took her to Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. Crafty. Yeah, thinking she'll need comforting. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't work. She sat there stony face while I blubbed. <laughs> it's the one and only date. But she, she asked for advice and she said, oh, Stephen, just be yourself. And I remember my first interview, my dad saying, just be yourself. And the thing is, just being yourself is so hard, isn't it? What is myself? And many of us spend our lives kind of thinking myself isn't good enough. If people saw myself... They wouldn't love me, they wouldn't go out with me, they wouldn't employ me. And so we put on a mask and we pretend to be a version of ourselves. And the fantastic good news of the Christian faith is that God loves you as you are. He does want to change you, but not into somebody else. He wants to change you into the beautiful you that you're capable of becoming. He's got a picture in his heart of of the beautiful Stephen, the beautiful Russell. Um, and he says, you don't need to wear all those masks anymore. You don't need to pretend to be somebody else. You can be you. And I just think that is the best news any human being can hear, that you're loved for who you are and you're transformed into what you're meant to be. Why is there cynicism about these ideas? Well, I think a lot of it is people haven't heard it. And because most of us do suffer anxieties about am I good enough am I, am I pretty enough am I thin enough you know our society particularly bombards us you know I particularly I mean it's true of men as well but I particularly think of young women growing up you know bombarded with the image of what their bodies should be like and sometimes I think all we've done in this culture is we've created like a nation of junkies who are hooked on the idea that you can purchase your way to happiness. You know, so if you just wore that pair of designer-labeled jeans, if you had that plastic surgery, obviously I'd need to get myself a toupee. You know, you, 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 you've got to do that. You've got to redesign yourself and then you'll be happy. But none of it works. Or it works just enough to get you hooked. So there's so many people who are hooked on the idea that that fast car, that perfume, that pair of jeans, that plastic surgery, that's going to make me happy. Um, I've, got to, I've got to be Instagram ready the whole time. All of that stuff um, is, is oppressing us. And I'm not saying it's all evil or bad, but it's not healthy and good. So the good news is, I think it's fantastic news, is you are loved for who you are you can be yourself hmm. if you 
can turn around from that. If you yeah, can turn yeah, yeah, you have to turn around. There is a surrender, a cost, a repentance. <coughs> Bless you. That's an it. And that's, that's the real thing. That's the real thing. Yes. Yeah. I'll take that <laughs> to the bank. There'll be a small, there'll be a small fee afterwards <laughs> for, for the blessing. I mean, also, it's one of the Stanley Spencer paintings. I mean, for me, the, the paint. there's two of the paintings I love the most. Is one where he's gazing at the daisies in the field. And he gazes yeah, at the... Yeah, wonder da- and love. And yeah, and I love that because... Because I asked myself the question when I saw the painting, why is he gazing at the daisies? And the answer is, just because they are. It's not because they've achieved something. They simply are, and he simply delights in them because they are. That's how he looks at us. I think in the book you said that it's likely a reference to the Consider the Lilies. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Stanley Spencer's playful reworking of um, a famous saying of Jesus, Consider the Lilies, only it's not lilies, it's just simple, simple daisies. Beautiful, because I suppose that's what Stanley Spencer was all about: was sort of place, placing scriptural events and motifs in in the, in the Monday or in his ordinary cookum yeah, yeah. life. Because if Christ ain't here now, well, it's no good to me. Yeah, I mean, he thought cookum was heaven. I mean, he you know he, he talked about cookum as a village in heaven, um, and he saw God. You know, he had the ability to see God in everything. Now, I. I don't have that yet, but that's what I aspire to. You know, so, you know, what I've learned from scriptures, what I've learned from Jesus, what I've seen in those paintings, can I put it in a very personal way? What's what's the cash value of my Christian faith? What's the, you know, in terms of my life? Well, it must be this, that right now, in this particular moment in time, which is the only thing I possess with any certainty, I am seeking to behold the presence of God in you, Russell. That's, and that's what I don't say I achieve this, but that's how I try to live my life. I try to live my life saying, God can be encountered in every moment, in every person, in every situation. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do. Now, of course, I fail, um, but that's what I'm trying to do. Um, and I would dare to hope you might even try and encounter God in me and say, hey, in this funny old bishop, I've actually seen something of who God is. Do you reckon that Christ was doing that the whole time? Yeah, yeah. Christ, because he was human as humanity is meant to be, was able to, yeah, see see and discern the presence of God in every moment. The other aspect of that um, that little verse from uh, Isaiah, I have redeemed you, it, like is the meaning of you know like redemption in a religious sense commonly understood i imagine to be a kind of salvation or like but i thought like you know if you redeem a ticket like you know like i've come to yeah. redeem this I, I i took from it you already belong you don't need to fear because i have personally called you you belong to me yeah. you are part of god yeah, and I, I felt think, a kind of yeah, freedom in that because yeah. it sort of smashed my sense of my individuality. Yeah, I think a lot of people get this wrong. I mean, the cross, which is the kind of central event of the Christian faith, the death of Christ, that is where Christ wins salvation for us. But he does that really by, um, well, somebody put it this way, on the cross, um, Jesus puts up a sign saying the religion shop is closed due to lack of interest on God's part, that, again, not saying religion is bad, but all those attempts to get to know God yourself, you don't need them anymore. I've done it for you in the cross of Christ. Or the image I use as well, again, from my family, I don't think I'd tell this story in the book. When my um, 
when my youngest son was very little, he got locked in his bedroom. Somehow he'd got locked the door and there was no key or the key was on the inside and he'd lost it. But anyway, he was locked in his bedroom. He's like, like two or three years old. I don't know how it happened. Anyway, he's screaming his head off in anxiety. I'm the other side of the door. Um, so what I didn't do is I didn't say to him, oh, he might listen to this, so I'm going to embarrass him now, Samuel. I didn't say, Sam, um, um, you know, you've got yourself locked in your bedroom. You're afraid you're going to have to stay there until you work out how to open the door yourself, <laughs> you know, as a lesson to you. Um, and I didn't say to him, Sam, if you say that you're sorry and that you're really, really sorry for getting locked in the bedroom, I will let you out. I didn't say that either. I kicked the bloody door down. <laughs> That's I said, stand back, and I kicked. There was quite a nice feeling actually kicking a door down. Yeah, single but, leg kick. Yeah, yeah. From the it hip. was good. It went but, one kick. But that's yeah, one kick. Well but that's done. what that's what the cross means. That's what the cross means. It's not God saying to you, Russell, if you promise me that you're never ever going to do those bad things again, I'll give you salvation. Um, it's not you're going to have to work it out for yourself how to get out of here and then you'll have salvation he kicks the bloody door down he says you know death you know because obviously the heart of the Christian faith is the cross and the resurrection the resurrection is God kicking the door down the door of death the door of sin the door of failure and saying I've set you free from all that now it's a free gift. And then you've got to decide whether you accept the gift. You know, it's free. You can reject it. But it's there for you whenever you want it. And the taking of that gift is what? What do you do? Just say yes. Huh. Just say yes. Just say, um, I, um, I, I see what you've done for me so that I can be me. I can be the me I've always meant to be, the me I've longed to be. I don't have to think it's something I've got to achieve by hard work. You just say yes. Oh, oh yes, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, but that's the Christian faith. But so many people have never heard it. They think it's a. They think the Christian faith is this complicated thing that that requires lots of repent. Well, it does require repentance. But the thing is, the repentance kind of comes afterwards. It's after I kicked the door down. I then said to Sam, "So Sam, you don't want to get yourself locked in that bedroom again. So watch out. But first of all, I set him free." And that's what God does on the cross. He sets us free. He says, sin, death, all of that is gone. Now live your life a new way. It can only be understood. I understand when you're talking about it and there's eye contact, I feel like, <laughs> I, okay, I get yeah. the reality of the sort of yeah. love and acceptance and connection and that, that, that there is transcendence in that. But of course, death continues. Yeah, you know, like yeah. everyone we love is going to die. Yeah. There is going to be more suffering. There is going to be more pain. There is going to be more war. So for me, that uh, my way of coping with that, in, to the degree that I am rational, uh, mm. you know, it, it, through sort of a rational interpretation, is that there is that it's a mythic template that Christ, the flesh man, dies. That Christ, the transcendent. God being might live and that is a paradigm that I might 
emulate that if I am willing to die unto myself, if I am willing to let go of all of my requirements to be Russell, i.e. the adulation, acceptance, flattery, all the things that I think, you know, Instagram likes, whatever it is that I need to, you know, if I'm willing to sacrifice, relinquish, let go of those things that I can be born anew into a, a world of love, I feel like I need to have a mythic understanding, an understanding which that that's a kind of language See, that I suppose that in a sense, Christianity but, uh, to the devotee requires a sort of literalism. Yeah, well, yeah, I suppose it does because, I mean, you know, call me old-fashioned, I think it's real. You know, for me, these are not mythic events. There was a person called Jesus who did die on the cross and who did rise again on the third day. What about, though, how... All right, then, so what about how it's that, that, that those motifs occur in other folklores and other pre-christian religions e.g dionysus or osiris yeah. you know that, that those motifs the virgin birth the crucifixion yeah. feel like they sort of emblematically occur yeah. elsewhere they do but nobody else has ever claimed that they i'm not saying therefore because we claimed it it means it's true but nobody has ever made the claims the christian faith makes no other religion makes those claims no other philosophy makes those claims um, the central claim being of, God of, comes earth, he loves yeah, you, yeah, he yeah. dies and, for you. And the, res and the resurrection. No, nobody claims those things as real. That The writers of those various myths and philosophies were not claiming these were real historical events. And you think that those are the determining motifs. What do you think, though, of that sort of, you know, do you know Joseph Campbell and that sort of like, in sort of comparative mythology, I heard that agricultural societies require that their God, that the resurrected God is a, a common theme in agricultural societies in that we plant crops, we need yeah, the crops to, yeah. you know, all of these sort of like, do you, you feel like those sort of rational interpretations are somewhat diminish or or dilute or yeah, even I do. deny the yeah power. I do I do which isn't to say that therefore they've got no they're of no interest they've got no meaning you know Jesus himself said unless a grain of wheat dies it remains a single grain if it dies it it you know it is risen um, uh, so he himself used those motifs and ideas but if the resurrection of Jesus is just a kind of you know if, if all it means is that the followers of Jesus had this idea that he was still with them you know he was such a great bloke I feel he's still with me um, if that's all it is then uh, then the Christian faith isn't worth following um, the, or the Christian faith just becomes a good philosophy because um, there is good philosophy yeah also. there is yeah there is there is it so it's a great philosophy but that's all it is if Jesus however did rise from the dead if that if Mary Magdalene went to the tomb on the you know on the East, first Easter morning and encountered the risen Christ, if that is true, then that must change everything that we think about humanity and the world. Because that, along with the other miracles, is verification that we're not just dealing with a good yeah. bloke. Yeah, exactly. We're dealing with yeah. God yeah. or yeah. a transcendent yeah. Yeah. being. Yeah. yeah, whatever language we use, we know that we can't just say Jesus was a great teacher. Or even a great miracle worker, he was—he really was God come down to earth. What about the rapture then and the second coming? Yeah, well, where do we go with that? If we're going to take Christ in a literal like yeah. senses, then where do we go with the rapture? And well, I believe that 
well we know we know from we know from science that there will be an end to this universe the universe which is expanding will contract so there will be an end to the world as we know it there will be an end to our lives as we know it so the biblical writers who i mean you mentioned earlier somebody who said they were all geniuses and i nearly interrupted you at that point i said well some of them were but some of them weren't no. some of them were really ordinary blokes were they were they oh yeah st mark when you become a priest you have to learn greek okay because the new Ooh. testament was written in greek um as you as i said earlier i didn't don't come from a big academic background so i struggled and to learn the greek and you know, did you know did all right in it but mark was quite easy to learn because mark was a bit thick himself and didn't do, <laughs> didn't do well at school and so once you've learned it's a bit like i don't know how good you are at french it's a bit like if you wrote something in french i'm not going to find it difficult to read it i've just got to learn the little bit of french that you know so once you've learned the little bit of greek that mark knows you can read mark's gospel who's hardest john john and luke L L luke was definitely a very cult cultured intelligent well-educated man mark was probably quite a simple bloke um what do you reckon do they what do we know they did or was we, we know we know about some of them like paul paul we know a lot about paul um because he we've got his letters which are the earliest mm. the earliest bits of the new testament of paul's letters written only 20 or 30 years after christ um the gospels are later mainly because the first disciples were all literate peasant fishermen so they couldn't read or write anyway and so the earliest accounts, the, the, the tradition is that St. Peter, we don't know whether this is true, but I, I take tradition seriously. Mm. Um, uh, the earliest tradition says that St. Peter dictated his memory of Christ to Mark and Mark wrote it down. And, this, and it's, it's certainly the earliest of the Gospels. So some of them were simple people who, who, wrote, who wrote it down. I can't remember what the question was now. Where did all this come from? But, uh, but I, I, So I take the account serious. Oh, the rapture, the second coming. is they were, they were struggling to find the language to describe something that was inexplicable and extraordinary. Um, and so you get these language and ideas that sometimes I wonder when they wrote it, did they even understand exactly what it meant? But I think what they're all saying is there will be an end. Um, like revelations. Yeah, stuff. there will be an end. Um, and the language that the church uses is Christ will come again. Um, um, or the language of we will see Christ face to face. There will be a reckoning. Um uh, and I don't think that's anything you need to be frightened. We need to be frightened of. Um, but again, if it's real, it logically follows um, that we have a life beyond this life, and that we will see God in some sense face to face. Though seeing God face to face, what does that mean? Uh, we can't imagine that. No, no. But so you're saying because like the gospels are reported, you know, about events that have occurred and necessarily revelations. Uh, is about this stuff's going to go down in the future yeah. you feel that there's d different interpretive rules because there is a historic yeah. component yeah, yeah. To if i was going to teach anybody about the bible the first thing i'd teach them is the bible is a library not a book it's the first thing i'd teach them uh and it's the it's the key to understanding it so it's a library so there's in other words there's different kinds of books in it there's poetry it's beautiful poetry like psalms or yeah like the psalms um and then there's the Gospels, which are accounts of the Jesus' life, resting upon first-hand accounts. 
there's letters, the letters of Paul. Then there's this sort of strange mystical writing, which is sometimes called apocalypse, revelation. You get some of that in the Old Testament and in at the end of the New Testament. It's a kind of literary genre that we don't really have anymore, but was quite common in biblical times that people would write these fantastic type of stories using a lot of allegory and imagery, which you can interpret. I mean, some bits of Revelation, when you read them, they seem weird, but actually they're quite easy to understand because it is referring not to the future, it's it's referring to events that are happening right right then and there but they use this kind of coded language to, ah. des- to describe it are they describing that sort of the what it's like to operate under the forces of that's right imperialism yeah. yeah yeah which i suppose is continues to be relevant how yeah bishop stephen how should we be practicing now ah uh, well I wish I had something more profound to say to you than that we must love one another. But I can't think of anything else to say. We must love one another. Um, On the night before he died, Jesus said to his friends, I give you a new commandment. You know, and the whole religious thing is based upon commandments. This is how you must live. Jesus, I'll give you a new one. Love one another. Love one another. As I have loved you, I have shown you what love looks like that was just after he'd washed their feet um so i believe that we must love one another and loving one another isn't easy you know loving love well the other thing jesus said is love your neighbor which is a very irritating thing to say um because it means love that very particular person that you're with right now right now that's again what i was saying about the cash value of the christian faith so um what matters is how we're living our lives now. Ah, uh, in the moment. Yeah, and um, and I believe that I believe that God in Christ reaches out to everybody and says, "Look, I, I have kicked the door down. This this gift is open to you. All you have to do is say yes. And if you say yes, you know, I will receive you because that's that's who I am. I am I am love." What kind of... Uh, why did you become a priest? I went down the job centre one night. No, <laughs> um, oh, well, I'm a kind of all or nothing person. Um, and I went... First of all, because I believe in God. I came to believe in God. How could you do, uh, what do you mean? So there was a bit where you didn't? Yeah. Oh, there was. Well, I wasn't brought up with church. I think I'd always, from a child, had a sense of God. But because I didn't go to church or you know, the kind of school I went to and the upbringing I had, God didn't feature much. But I think inside, I always had a sense of God. But I think also... But I think also it was about wanting to change the world, really. Um, my, I was quite involved in po- politics, left-wing politics, you know, as a young man. Um, and I think what I... What would that have been, CND? Or yeah, one? yeah, well, I'm still involved in that. I mean, I'm still oh. I'm still the go-to bishop for CND. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've spoken at a few rallies in Trafalgar Square. Too. I don't want to meet bishops that are pro-nuclear weapons. No, no, I don't think, I don't think there are any other that are pro. But yeah, I, I mean, I one day, I um, one of the love, most lovely things I've done as a bishop is I celebrated Mass, Holy Communion, outside the base at Faz Lane about five or six years ago. As a you know, as a kind of act of peaceful protest, um, and it was a beautiful thing to do. And the Scottish police were fantastic because they, <laughs> um, they, um, 
you know, they don't like nuclear weapons any more than I do. So they realised we were peaceful. This was a peaceful protest. But they did say, if anybody would like to be arrested, when you finish, just let us know and we'll arrest you. (laughs) (laughs) It was really neat. Um, So um, I think my diagnosis is this. The world needs a heart transplant. That would be my diagnosis. The world needs a new heart. Um, Only God can change the heart. We can't change our own hearts, but God can change our hearts. So I became a priest because I thought I need to be, I can't do it myself, but I need to be spreading the word that if you long for the world to be different, if you long for your life to be different, it can be. But but you 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 need to know about what God can do. How long does it take to become a priest? And is it hard? Uh, it varies. That Greek bit, for example. Yeah, yeah. Well, nowadays, I mean, I've been a priest, you know, 30 years, so we, we're a bit more lenient now. Um, <laughs> it's a tougher. No, we really are. I mean, we, you know, we, we now are much more concerned with people's hearts than we are with their heads. So everyone will have training, but we will now have training pathways which are suited to different people's backgrounds, academic. So would you have to still learn Greek? and No. You'd have to study the Bible, but you wouldn't necessarily study it in Greek. You'd perhaps at least learn a little bit so you realise there's an issue here. Um, But, no, we would be much more... Yeah, we've got a number of pathways for training. Typically, it takes three years, but some people it's less. Some people it might be a bit more. Actually, over in Essex, you know, which I know we're both from the same great county, much maligned, (laughs) wonderful county of Essex, we're seeing... A real, a real increase in young men and women coming forward to be priests in the Church of England. It's fantastic. We were all right always with the women, gays, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I um, I've been a big supporter of women's ordination. Um, the Church of England. I mean, LGBTI people are absolutely welcome in our churches. Let's be absolutely clear about that. Um, we've still. We've still got an ongoing debate about some of those other issues about same-sex marriage, etc. Um, that's not where we are at the moment. Um, but I, I like to think, and I hope that's people's experience, that we are, we are the church for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's your thing. Is the church for everybody? Yeah. Yeah. I've enjoyed our conversation. So have I. I've really enjoyed meeting you. It's been um, really lovely, it's, and I'm so curious to be reminded that we met yeah. in, in Broomfield Hospital, Chelmsford, when my mum was there, we, we, you know, having some treatment for cancer, and you happened to be there because your son was injured. Yeah, we had a 10-second... Pray up in a corridor. Probably wasn't even 10 seconds, but it was just, you know, we just kind of almost literally bumped into each other. So um, that was maybe a little meant-to-be moment. But um, but I, I want to say to you... You know, I, I, I obviously I, I know you like people know you. Although some people did say to me before, do you know who Russell Brand is? I said, yeah. I said, I'm not that much of an old fart. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, my my sons who are in their twenties. Were very excited. Ooh, really? Yeah, well, yeah, because you know, you know, they 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 know of you. And I think the other thing I've noticed is that many people have observed the way that you've changed. Um, and that's been moving to read about and to see. In fact, I have quoted you once or twice. Honestly, down yeah, the honestly, church. Yeah. Well, when I sometimes when I'm when I'm 
speaking. I mean, I do a lot of speaking outside of the church to right, try to so it say. Wasn't to in the church. I want it in a church. Right. Well, it may have been in a church. But it definitely <laughs> was outside. But I was there as a bishop, and, and and a lot of people assume that if you don't go to church, one, you're not welcome in church. I know everybody's welcome, and the second thing is people think if you don't go to church, then you must be an atheist. And so I'm going around saying, actually, there aren't that I many. There are atheists. I said, but most people in Britain today aren't atheists. They're not churchgoers either. They're kind of spiritual seekers. They're actually quite open. And then I say, and then I usually quote, I say, so for instance, let me read you something that Russell Brand said. And it's just interviews I've read of yours in various magazines, which just demonstrate, well, this person is taking God seriously, taking the Christian faith seriously. I said, I don't know whether he calls himself a Christian or not, but he's not an atheist and he's very open to God. And I've got a little collection of, quotes from a number of you know fairly high profile people which I use just to demonstrate and to kind of normalize the fact that actually recognizing the spiritual and searching for the spiritual that's not a weird thing in fact as I where our conversation started it's the most natural thing there is yeah what else are we going to do gather stuff you know I feel like you know I agree with what you said about the heart transplant I can't see how we can do that through the intellect yeah you know like it, love needs to be at the center yeah i'd like where's your uh where do you do your ministry now well then? the thing about a bishop is i've oh, uh, um i've got over a few i've got 600 churches in no essex and east london do you show up does it make the other ones nervous yeah yeah um, watch out the bishop's about um, look busy um, <laughs> do you wear that hat oh yeah sometimes? I certainly do certainly do yeah I wear, yeah. May, May West said if you've got it flaunt it and so <laughs> so I wear all the gear I'm a proper bishop um, <laughs> and um, yeah so I'm usually most Sundays I'm at one church in the morning one in the afternoon I'm like I'm like Bob Dylan I'm on permanent tour oh, going right. yeah, going around yeah going around all the churches and obviously there's the cathedral so I'm probably there more than any other church but most Sundays I'm in a parish somewhere in Essex or East London so oh so what like what there's Chelmsford Cathedral which yeah. ones yeah yeah Chelmsford Cathedral is the cathedral for the diocese is the old county of Essex so that includes what is now the five East London boroughs so Newham Waltham Forest Redbridge Havering Barking and Dagenham, so that's all part of my patch. Oh. So it's a huge patch, but because it's where I grew up, and because, well, you you know Essex well. I mean, the, you know, I love North Essex, but up in North Essex, you know, posh Essex, they if you speak to them about where you live, they say East Anglia. <laughs> 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 They're a bit embarrassed about being in Essex, but in proper Essex, Grays, Thurrock, South End, Basildon, I love I love those places. <laughs> And I love the people. Me too. And and I kind of feel they're my people. You know, it sounds if, if I can say it, that I kind of feel they're my people. I understand that culture. It's what I grew up in. Yeah. Um, and so I love going around the churches and um, and and in the communities. A lot of my work is in the communities. Yes, yes. I like it. And is it what you say about it's primarily food banks and the, pick the, inf the institutions that are picking up welfare slack? It, it, it is. I mean, knife crime is, you know, kind of, as we all know, horrendous at the moment. Um, I mean, the church is probably the only organisation that still has a presence in every community. We're on the ground in every community. We're the only people who are consistently, for instance, providing youth workers in you know, the, 
the council with the austerity cuts the council can't afford them anymore they were almost the first thing they cut is is youth service provision the police have had their numbers cut the church is still there on the ground um and uh on the whole people know us you know the local vicar is somebody who's known um, you know, it's, it's funny with the church, really, because a lot of people, if you say to them, what do you think of the Church of England? They'll think, oh, it's Church of England is rubbish. It's a bit like the health service. What do you think of the health service? Oh, it's rubbish. Oh, but my local hospital, my local doctor, they're fantastic. And it's a bit like that with the church. People say, oh, Church of England, yeah, going to the dogs. But my local vicar, oh, now she's a really fantastic person because we're there on the ground. So we're very involved in that sort of community stuff. I mean, this morning I was at a school near Epping, um, a fantastic school in a, I mean, it, even, I mean, Epping's quite a posh bit of Essex, but this was our council estate parish at the back of Essex towards North Weald. Fantastic school, fantastic head teacher, doing brilliant work with these kids. It was a joy. What did you talk about? I talked to them about Jesus as the bread of life. I had some fun with them. Because one of the sayings of Jesus is, I'm the bread of life. And I said to them, if Jesus had been an Italian, what would he have said? Pizza of life? Yeah, I'm the pizza of life. Or if, <laughs> if, he'd, if he'd been Chinese, what would he have said? You know, the noodles of life, the rice of life. What if he'd been an American? I'm the hamburger. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you can see. So we had some fun. about. <laughs> and I said, but, he, but it, the reason he said bread, and the reason he might have said pasta or rice or pizza, is because he's saying... I am the most basic thing you need, like bread. Just like you need bread to keep you alive, you need God to keep you alive. So that was my talk to the kids. But I also took along all my gear, which I didn't bring this afternoon, so I showed them my hat. And It's like a fish, is it? No, the hat is, the hat is actually the shape of a flame. Ah, oh, what is that flame? Because there's a story in the Bible where it says when Jesus gave his spirit to his friends, it looked like there was a flame on their heads, a tongue of fire. So bishops wear the, the mitre, it's called. It's, um, it's in the shape of a tongue of fire. So it's a great hat. That Lord's Prayer, so he actually said that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And on the Sermon on the Mount, it's part of the... Where yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in, um, it's in Matthew chapter... Well, it's Matthew 5 to 7. I can't remember exactly where it is. You put me on the spot now. So he, and he just came out, he said it. Well... Yeah, I Do you I, like it as yeah, a prayer. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. The Lord, it's the only prayer you need actually. Everything, everything is in that prayer. Everything. Do you think people? I mean, to return to where we began, like that prayer should be part of life. Yeah, it should be. Prayer should be the most natural thing we do. Though we, many of us don't do it. I certainly believe it is the most important thing I do every day. You pray at the beginning and the end. Build yeah, your... yeah, and and I mean, I, I, my aim is that St Paul said, "Pray all the time." <laughs> well, that's setting the bar very high. I don't think he meant do that activity we call prayer all the time. He said, "Make your life a prayer. Make your life, you know, dwell in the present moment. Behold God in everybody and everything. Then your life is a prayer." But because most of us aren't like that, you need times of prayer to enable you to be prayerful in the rest of life. You're an actual bishop in the House of Lords and everything. When was the last time you think, oh, like that you did something, you think, oh my God, I let myself down there. Like, have you had done any like actual shouting at your wife or lost it in a car? Yeah, or well... shout a curse of, word of, at of, a traffic of course, light? Of course the answer is every day. Of course it is. You know, every day I know I fall short, not necessarily in those particular ways, but in various ways. Um, 
uh, and there's no hierarchy of sin. Um, it's not that some things are worse. We, we think, we humans measure them and think some things are worse than others, but whenever we do something which, you know, a, a harsh word to somebody is, 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 a, is a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, and greed, you know, I, greed is a... I, I, last year, no, two years ago, I walked, I had some sabbatical leave and I walked to Santiago de Compostela, the oh, great pilgrimage. Yeah, I walked, it took me a month, I walked 750 kilometres. And, um, and what I learnt, I learnt lots of stuff on that walk, but the thing that I learnt the most was I learnt what give me, give us today our daily bread, I learnt what it means. Oh. That it, about what's enough. It's about, when you say, give us today our daily bread, what you're really saying is, give me enough. Save me from wanting more than my share. That's what it means. Right. Because I've been misusing it. Yeah, well, I... I say that prayer, and yeah. I mean, I want a bolt of God energy no, to smash no. me out of the material world where I frankly feel like I don't belong. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying it doesn't mean that as well, but I, I do believe primarily it means... Help me to live lightly on the earth. Help me to know what my share is and not to ask for more. Because Why did you get that on that? Pilgrimage? I got that because when you're because I've got a rucksack on my back. I'm literally setting off. I don't know where I'm going to sleep that night. I don't know where the next meal's coming from. Ooh. I've got hardly anything in my. I'm just walking across Spain, um, uh, and um, I became reliant upon the hospitality of strangers. You know, my life is very secure. I know where I'm going to sleep tonight. I know where I'm going to get food. Suddenly, to have a bit of vulnerability built in was a bit scary. And so I learned... And I, I weight is everything. I didn't take very much with me. Um, but I still took too much. And that was so interesting to think, I've hardly got anything with me, and yet I don't need all this stuff. Um, you know, so I took three pairs of knickers, three, <laughs> three shirts, three pairs of socks. You don't need... You don't need three. Need two. Just need two. Yeah, wash one, wear one, wash one, wear one. So that was a sobering lesson. And then, of course, when I got home, wait till you see a bishop's palace, you know. No way. Well, it's, you know, it's not mine. I have it I have it on loan while I'm a bishop. There's a house that goes with the job. It's a lovely house. Um, but, you know, it's a big house. And I can promise you I've got more than three pairs of knickers and more than three pairs of socks and more than, you know, I've got a load of stuff like like we have in this culture. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have stuff but the trouble with possessions is that they start possessing you he says get shot of everything yeah he does he? he does yeah he does and most of us can't do that but learning what enough looks like was a good thing because in a sense it is freeing you huh? yeah yeah but... i felt more free on that month walking than i have done in a lot of my life i know i know there's a certain unreality to it i can't spend my whole life walking the earth though there's something rather beautiful about doing that um but I came back with a renewed sense of the Christian faith is a way of life. It's a, the Christian faith is a pilgrimage through life. It's a way of living and, uh, and learning to live more simply, learning to live lightly. These were real blessings that were really good for me, let alone good for the world. Mm. But of course, I've fallen short of that. Um, and so, yeah, the answer to your question is, yeah, I, I do fall. Of course I fall short. But I don't beat myself up about it anymore. Or well, sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. Um, 
I, I believe in a God who loves me and forgives me. And that's always there for me. Thank you. Um, Bishop Stephen. Is it time to shut up now? Shall we? <laughs> yeah. We down. How long do we do? Eighty-five minutes, ninety minutes. It was a good, like you know, game of two halves, ninety yeah. minutes of it. Yeah. Thank you very much. I've. It's been really beautiful to talk to you. I feel pretty peaceful actually. Yeah. Well, same, same here. Do. You? Yeah, I do. I do, and I want to thank you for this opportunity. I said you can switch us off now, but I did say. Um, no, I don't mind recording this, but we can stop. But I, I did, I do a lot of work in, you know, it goes with the job. I do a lot of work with the media locally and sometimes nationally. I'm one of the national leads for the Church of England on media stuff. Um, and what, even though I've done it for so long, I'm so frustrated by it because of the soundbite culture that we live in. Yeah. Where, you know, even a long interview on the radio or the telly would be three or four minutes. Yeah. And there's never a chance to build a relationship, to have a conversation. And I just think, oh, our, our world is so impoverished by that, where everything has to be reduced to the soundbite. So yeah. it's been really, it's been a real pleasure just to talk. And, uh, and I think this is where podcasts are putting mainstream media to shame. Because I think podcasts are popular because they enable, well, you can warm to your theme, you can have a conversation, you can... You know, you can go you can go off at a tangent and come back again. It's revealed that people are interested in having yeah. those participating in that kind of discourse. There's an audience for it. People don't just want superficial three yeah. minute spikes yeah. of yeah. epithets and Yeah. So it's lovely for me to have the opportunity just to you know, in fact I'm thinking to myself, why why aren't we the church ought to be doing a bit more of this? Oh, there there are, there are, but I it's not something I've got that involved in. You should have in. your own one. I shall be thinking about it. I know I seriously I will. Because you could talk about everything. You could do yeah. like a whole yeah. like sermons. Yeah. I'd listen. Yeah, well bless you. Thank you. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Bishop Cottrell. Remember to let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at True Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with the hashtag under the skin. In the meantime, have a listen back to some previous episodes. Jamila Jamil, Pakaj Mishra on the age of anger, Charles Eisenstein on climate change and activism. I do want to talk to him again. He wants to come on again, doesn't he? Get him on again. Who else are we getting on? Oh, Brene Brown. Oh, I'm doing two stand-up shows in Calgary on the 15th of June, one at 6pm and one at 9pm. All proceeds go to Fresh Start Recovery Centre. Tickets at russellbrand.com. I'll be in some, doing some more live shows in Los Angeles. Have a look at Russell Brand for up-to-date listings. And uh, is there old podcasts on there still? Are they still on there? Old podcasts and writing, things I've written. Oh, there's a lot of stuff on there. My latest book, Mentors, is available as an audiobook on Kindle or in hardback in the US and Canada. And of course, everywhere where books are available. I think you can probably get them under the sea. Check out my Netflix special, Rebirth. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand, from Luminary Media. It was produced by Jenny May Finn. Yeah, you produced it. And uh, it was also... What did Charlie Briggs do, would you say? She's like a line producer. That's how it would work if it was conventional media. Yeah, anyway, it's from Luminary Media. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you next week. Talk to you soon. Love you. Bye. Right, bye. No, you put the phone down first. No, you put the phone down first. One, all right, we both put it down at the same time. One, two, three. Oh, you didn't put the phone down either. Which is uh, actually uh, something I saw Ross and Rachel do in a very funny episode of Written Notes when he does it with Emily and Rachel's there, angry. Ah, oh, friends, eh?